Hey, welcome back. Today, I have a bonus episode for you for season three. I chat with Trey Ferguson, a pastor, an author, a speaker, and let me tell you, you are probably going to want to take notes on this one. There's some really good stuff in here. Well, I'm really excited today to have Trey Ferguson with me. I know you as author of Theologizing Bigger, Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy, which I've been really enjoying reading. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad to hear that it's been an enjoyable experience for you thus far. It really has been. It's a different tone than I read a lot. You know, I read a lot of... uh, I don't know, very serious material. <laughs> and it right. is serious, but yeah. you just, you bring a level of lightheartedness and I don't know, it's, it's really nice. It's really refreshing. Yeah, the way I like to put it is that I, I, I do take my craft seriously and my charge seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes through and it's really nice because I think a lot of us in deconstruction start taking ourselves. Well, I'm a deconstruction podcast. I, w- I don't know that you would say you are specifically speaking to people in deconstruction, although your book does, we'll get into that later. But I will say in my space, there's a lot of seriousness. And so it was really pleasant to ta- to hear someone tackling some of these really big topics in the way you do. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. But first, could you just tell us a little bit about you, who you are, what you do, um, and especially kind of your spiritual roots? I know we're going to get into that more, but just so people can kind of like get a feel for who Trey Ferguson is. Most definitely. So I am Trey at Pastor Trey 05, uh, Pastor Trey 05, that's Pastor Trey 05 on basically all the socials. My website is PastorTrey05.com and all that stuff. And it's not like I just play one on TV. Now, that's what I do in real life. I'm the executive pastor at the Refuge Church here in Homestead, Florida. And before I was an author, which is the newest task I've taken on, that's that's what I've been doing. That is uh, where I spend most of my time and energy in the vocational sense. And at the same time, if you were to ask me what I did for a living, I would tell you that I am a theologizer. My mm-hmm. time and energy is spent wrestling with and talking about God in a multitude of ways, whether that is uh, through writing blogs or newsletters over at the Sunday Move newsletter, whether that's through podcasting with the New Living Translation or Three Black Men podcast, whether that's in now writing books like Theologizing Bigger, I am endeavoring to make connections between the lives we live and the God that we believe in or the God that we hope in mm. or the God that we wish we could believe in or the God that we've stopped believing in. What Whatever that is, I uh, try to make that plain. Now, in a more formal sense, a lot of people would call that a public theologian. I am a public theologian, and more specifically, in the realm of constructed theology. Uh, but that's who I am and what I do. But like I said earlier, even though I have the academic training, and now I have like the the title under my belt as far as being an author goes and all those things, I don't really take myself that seriously. I'm at heart a really silly dude, <laughs> and that impacts my work because I don't like pretending to be anybody that I'm not. So each and everything that I think about God is filtered through the person that I am. Because at the end of the day, a lot of that silliness is some of it's a trauma response because I've lived a life. right? Mm, um, yeah. And so when you're asking about the spiritual roots that inform that, I am somebody who grew up in church, uh, 
it might not be that relatable to the experience of everyone listening to this because mm -hmm. I also grew up in the black church tradition as opposed to a more like uh, evangelical youth group culture. It was, it was a little bit, there's a lot of similarities and overlap, but it's different. Mm -hmm. And I, during my most formative years, right, adolescence and young adulthood, I was in pretty secular environments. I graduated from an Episcopalian high school and then went to a completely secular university and was regularly in community with and confronted with ideas that did not align with the ones that I was raised on. Hmm. And so a lot of that impacts the person that I am right now and, and the work that I do. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, and it, it was so interesting. You're one of the first people. And I mean, this really does show living in an echo chamber, maybe not an echo chamber, but, you know, pointing out the idea that so many deconstruction voices. So that's because that's my show, my focus, you know, we have not, we end up being in this evangelical space, which has ended up being so white, which has ended, it's just so, it's been very interesting looking at your book and thinking, oh, like, what does this mean to people who had different backgrounds? What does the wrestling mean? And that's one thing I love about your book. I love seeing a Christian who, I, and I should ask you if you feel like you would describe yourself as ever being in deconstruction because i i don't know if you would say that but seeing someone wrestle the way you have is extremely refreshing and i feel like so needed in christianity as a whole right now so what is my question um i guess could we start with that as far as this term deconstruction what's your relationship right. to it <laughs> a giant question but yeah what is your relationship to it as yourself yeah it's not at all i'm, I'm not inimical to the term at all. And a yeah. lot of what goes into the process of deconstruction is is something uh, that I, I can relate to in many ways. Mm -hmm. Where it kind of becomes a little tricky is that I can't point to a moment when deconstruction began for me or ended. Uh, for me, deconstruction is a continual process. It's the continual re-examining. And that is at the heart of everything that I do as a, as a theologizer, right? As a part of theologian, as a constructive theologian, that's at the heart of everything I do is this idea of taking things apart, putting them back together again, right? Mm -hmm. Constructive theology, the field that I identify with stands in not necessarily opposition to, but conversation with systematic theology. Okay. Which is ultimately what a lot of these conversations we're having are about. The things that we've inherited, the beliefs that we've constructed about God. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my tasks is to continually examine those in an intimate way and, and see what accords not only with the Bible and our traditions, but with the lives that we live on a day-to-day -day basis. And yeah. with that being said, I guess, you know, one of the models of the Reformation, the 16th century Reformation was simple reformand, always reforming, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of how I, I don't identify as reformed, but to me, that's like this commitment to to deconstructing in a way, not in the 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 the, the Jacques Derrida sense necessarily, yeah, but in yeah. the way that a lot of people end up using it nowadays in terms of re-examining what it is that we are dealing with when we talk about things of faith. Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, like if, if you ask somebody in the deconstruction community what it is that they're talking about, oh yeah, I'm I'm on board with that, like pretty much a hundred percent. Difference is this wasn't anything that was a response to a crisis of faith for me or mm -hmm. or anything having to do with uh, a confrontation I had with my community. This is a commitment that I had to undergo in order to re-enter the church. Like I mentioned me going through a really secular phase. 
in order for me to hold the reality of who I was attention with what I believed and who the church is, th this is what was required of me to remain authentic, this commitment to reexamining things. Does that answer the question? You know, I think so to a degree because, well, and part of it is I'm, I'm listening to you and I was like, wow, this is really the hope I think I have for the church of the future because I have a feeling, you know, in the next hundred years, church is going to look very different and yes. people who identify as Christian are going to look very different. But I think the ones who still do, it's like deconstruction. I, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if it'll almost be, it'll disappear because anyone who remains will have to be, it, it won't be inherited anymore. You know, it'll be this, this process to a degree, maybe not a hundred years, but at some point there will, I think, potentially be people who have, since it's not the cultural norm, they're here because of examining, uh, examining, and it seems like that's you know, in a sense, you you did inherit it, but you also are someone who's very self aware and someone who's examined the whole time. So there wasn't, it doesn't sound like this extremely jarring moment of oh no, you know what now? And I I, I hope that for the future of the church. I don't know if, if that's what will happen, but I've thought about that a lot, actually, the future of the church, and that's a whole thing. I would, I'd really be interested in hearing a pastor's thoughts on that, even though that's not even remotely what I came here to talk to you about. But would you mind sharing a few thoughts on the oh, future of the definitely. church, especially I in light of deconstruction, I think? I would be shocked if what you are saying right now does not come true, right? Mm -hmm. um, I am a student of a lot of different areas. When it comes to my my area of expertise is obviously in the realm of theology. Right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the areas where I don't debate everybody because we're not all equal. I, I only debate my equals, all others I teach. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then when it comes to areas where I'm curious, right, my hobbies, I am a student of religion in general, how these things function. And I'm also a student of history, particularly American history between the periods of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. But mm. one of the things that is always amazing to me is analyzing our faith and our religion through the lens of history. One parallel that is impossible for me to miss is between the deconstruction movement that we now know and the reformation of the 16th century. Mm. What is often missed about our examination of the reformation when we focus on the theology of the reformation is the technology of the reformation. There's no reason to believe that the reformation is as successful as it was if the printing press had not been invented right before it. Mm. These ideas are shared much more quickly than they could have been without the invented the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, right? Like that, that, that spurred this on the idea of literacy. There's a reason why this whole thing, Sola Scriptura and, and the appeal to the actual Bible made sense in this context, because before then people couldn't have Bibles in their homes. That was a sign yeah. of wealth. And that's why the, the Catholic faith that was handed down was largely about symbols and stories and rituals, as opposed to the text, because people didn't have access to the text in that way. So at the same time that the text becomes more available, these ideas about the text become more available through the technology that was available to them. You fast forward 400 years later, right? Now we have the internet, we have cell phone technology, we have social media and all of these things that have accelerated the spread of information even faster. And so we're confronted with more ideas about the Bible and facts like if a, a native Spanish speaker is reading the Bible where John 1, 1 in English says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, their translation is closer to in the beginning was the verb and the verb was God, right? Mm. People are experiencing the word of God in different ways. And the way that we encounter God is different. And because of technology, we are now confronted with varying viewpoints in the degree that we hadn't been for the previous two, three, four, five decades, right? 
social media has shrunk the world in a way that the church, much like was in the case during the Reformation, is a little slow to acknowledge and respond to. And so in the same way that there is an entire tradition born from the Reformation, largely spurred on by this technology. I think that there is a tradition that is born from this latest technological wave through this latest uh, rebirth of reconstruction and reexamining faith that we don't get to turn back from. Now, if you notice, there's still an Eastern, or Eastern Orthodox Church. There's still a Roman Catholic Church, but there's also a very large Protestant tradition. We will still have that Protestant tradition and the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and the, Co and the Coptic Church. But then you'll also have people who view their faith a lot more differently after this. We don't get to turn back from that. We can't unsee what we've seen. And so if you're asking about the future of the church, it does look more diverse, just like the church looks more diverse after the Reformation. Hmm, that is fascinating. I have never honestly put the thought of technology. I've never paired it that way with church movement. I mean, I, I've, that's very interesting. I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up a lot. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that um, I recently read this book uh, called God After Einstein by uh, a theologian at Georgetown. His name is John Hart, I believe. But it was fascinating because the thesis there is that after Einstein's theory of general relativity, we cannot escape the fact that the universe is still expanding. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us think of the universe as this fixed thing, whereas it is, uh, as he posits, it's an unfolding drama. And one of the things that we have an opportunity to do with the Christian faith is participate in the anticipation of that which is yet to come. It places God in the future. So this idea of the fact that the church is changing is not at all scary. We should expect it when we are participating in a drama with twists and turns that we cannot foresee. Yeah. And I was going to actually ask you that as a pastor, how do you how do you feel about the potential future of the church? And I guess you just answered it because, you know, I I still would say I'm a Christ follower. I like I mean it sounds so technical, I guess, or splitting hairs. I'll say I'm an agnostic Christ follower because I have hope in this faith and I love how you talk about hope in in your book concerning faith because it, a lot of Christians will hear that. I know you've been called a heretic by some. I certainly have, you know, yeah. but it's like isn't faith the substance of these things hoped for? And so all of that to say, you know, the thought of having a hope towards something bigger, I think Maybe is that what's giving you and I sort of almost an excitement for this as opposed to how many churches are like, oh, no, our congregations are leaving. Oh, no, like stuff is going really terribly wrong. I mean, do you think what what makes your um, your lack of fear, you think, different from maybe some churches that are finding fear? at the prospects of the future. Yeah, I think for me, it's just a matter of really sitting with the fact that the universe is still being born, right? Mm -hmm. God God is in the not yet. The, the God who created the world before the beginning of time is still in the process of creating. A lot mm -hmm. of times we struggle with this idea of determinism. And if God is sovereign, does that mean that God already knows everything? Well, yeah, but it's not as though God has placed a script in place and we're just playing roles that we don't, control. God has given us parameters and we get the right part of this story, but we don't know what happens in the future. Yeah. One of the things that I get to do with this faith of mine, one of the things that I get to do with placing my faith in a resurrected Jesus, a man who was lynched, tortured to death, and then rose from the grave, descended where he is seated at the right hand of the father from where he will come to judge the living and the dead, right? The, the faith in that allows me to reckon with what lies ahead as opposed to where I am right now. Like, I don't really hold 
an escapism faith where I'm, I'm just excited to escape this world that we've inherited to get to heaven one day. I believe it when Jesus says that we are to pray on earth as it is in heaven, right? Mm. And so we eagerly await that which is to come. And then we hope and work toward bringing that to bear in our own time. That excites me. One of the things that I, I can't afford to do is be afraid about trends within the church and, and declining numbers or whatever, because a lot of these churches that celebrated their highest attendance throughout the 1950s and everything were kicking at their height right around the time that segregation and redlining and all of its effects were in place. So the, the church was there, but y'all weren't speaking to these issues, right? Mm, um, yeah. And it's almost as though some people had to leave their churches in order to find God, the God who oh, hears the cries of the yeah. oppressed and everything, right? Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. So for that reason, yeah, I don't, I, I'm definitely hopeful because I believe in Jesus. Like at the end of the day, my hope is Jesus wins. Why, why would I ever lose hope? Because it looks like right now we're losing. If you read the Bible, it looks like Jesus lost when he did the whole lynching thing, right? Like when, when he was lynched, it looks like that. But the hope is always in the resurrection. What happens after what looks like losing turns into winning? Mm, oh, I love that so much. That's so much. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's get to your book because otherwise I will just ask you every question I can think of that doesn't you, have to do with you your book. You can ask whatever you want. That's perfectly fine. You you can ask book uh, questions, but ask whatever you want. This is all about theologizing. Big that's true. That's true. It does all tie together. It does. But I, I really, there were three particular things I really wanted to talk to you about that I read in your book. And I, I think they will be really helpful for the community I speak to because they really hit different angles than what we often talk about in these spaces. And, but they're, they're really related. So I actually wanted to talk a little bit about your chapter on deconstruction because of course, because of the show, but also it was so interesting. Your observation interacting with someone, I believe in your comments was on Twitter, maybe someone for the deconstruction yes. community. And this is something that's really been rolling around in my mind, how so often when people leave former spaces, they really retain so many things from those spaces without even knowing it sometimes. And I just wondered if you could share that story a little bit with us and some of your observations from it. Most definitely. This is, I, I drew from a particular story right in that chapter, but I've seen this bear out several times, right? And I can typically tell without anybody even having confessed, and it always comes out eventually, when I talk about God in public, there are people online who have made it their mission, their entire personality, to argue with people who believe anything, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the aggressive anti-theist community. Mm -hmm. And almost nine times out of ten, of course, I'm pulling that number out of nowhere, but the majority of times... <laughs> It is apparent or they will eventually confess that, oh, I used to be a Christian and mm. they have become enlightened. Right. And mm -hmm. I can tell exactly what type of Christian they used to be for the most part. And some people will say, oh, I was in a conservative fundamentalist area. Then I was a progressive Christian. And then I was this. Right. And uh. the story, it, it, it always follows this similar arc. And I said, OK, the thing that repulsed you about where you started, this conservative fundamentalism, this this quest and desire for certainty that was brought to you, that you inherited. It's not as though you desired it on your own. That, mm -hmm. You were told that that's what it looked like to be serious about God, that this need and desire for certainty and the commission to argue with everybody who disagreed with you, you were told that that's what it looked like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And even as you moved away from those communities because they harmed you, because you saw how they treated 
the LGBTQ community, because you saw the racism inherent in your tradition, because you saw the misogyny and all of these things. You moved away from the tradition because of all of these things you saw wrong. That need for certainty and the need to be right above and against everybody else who disagrees with you, you took that with you. And we have to ask at a certain point how beliefs shape our constitution. We have to ask how beliefs shape our ethics and, and the way that we show up in the world. Because if we can deconstruct all of the beliefs and we haven't gotten to a point to how these impact our ethics and everything, we're not really doing the work that we need to become free. Mm. If on the way out of these communities, you still feel the need to have a megaphone, right? The same way that you felt the need to witness all the time when you were in the conservative evangelical space, the same pressure that was placed mm -hmm. upon you in your youth group where you always had to be saving souls or you weren't being for real. If you take that same attitude with you, even as we drop the creeds behind or whatever, then you're not really free. You're just trading different masters. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. My argument here is that if we start with deconstructing the attitudes, then the rest might follow. Mm. Like if we decide that we will show up in the world more humbly, we decide that we will show up as better neighbors, not for the sake of converting people, but for sharing creation with the other people that it was created for. Then all of a sudden we realize that some of the beliefs that we have, like, oh, these beliefs are not helping me do that. Mm. That that's that's not the way that this thing is is pointed out to do. I think we could do two things at one time. The problem comes when we start with the beliefs and never deal with the ethics. Then from a distance, can't nobody tell you did any work at all. Ah, uh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting because I came at this the opposite way. From going to school, doing this whole theology, you know, thinking some of this theology doesn't, the logic doesn't add up. And now interviewing people, the ethics is a thing. And right. it's, I can see, but, but the ethics is precisely why some of the math doesn't add up in some of our, you know, health beliefs. And so I think that's so interesting to say, what if we started there? I don't know. That's fascinating. Yeah. And from a lot of religious communities, it feels dirty to start like that. Like, yeah. oh, I believe what the Bible says. And I'm like, okay, but you should really only believe it if it accords with what you know to be true. If you mm -hmm. have to rewrite, if the Bible tells you that the sky is orange, like a bright orange at all times, and that's the natural color of the sky, and you go outside and you're like, oh, well, it looks pretty blue. It doesn't make sense to be like, well, the Bible has to be true. I guess I'm lying to myself. So if uh, the belief that you have, if, if what you know to be true or what you believe to be true is that God has to at least fundamentally be good. Mm -hmm. And what somebody tells you is that God cannot stand to be in your presence until God gets their pound of flesh, until somebody is tortured in your place. Mm. Those don't line up. And it's fair to start with the point like, oh, wow, what is this saying to me? If, if God is one who demands torture to be able to stand me and I'm aspiring to be more like God, is this a worthwhile faith to claim for myself? It's fair to ask that question. It's fair for that to be a starting point. And anybody who tells you differently is very obviously trying to control you because it's not controversial to say like, oh, God, God should be good. And then they'll say like, well, who am I to question God? What do you mean? I'm a human being. There's all sorts of human beings questioning God. Mm -hmm. If God cannot be questioned, then God does not love you. 
Mm. Right? <laughs> Jacob is blessed because Jacob wrestles with God. Jesus deals with all sorts of questions the whole time. This idea that, oh, God is sovereign. We can't question. What? What are you talking about? Job don't do nothing but question God and, and take God. And of course, God shows up in the book of Job and has a whole lot of things to say. But what happens after that? Job is blessed. It's not yes. like this. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and and so this idea, like it, it's not offensive to God if we say, well, no, God, you have to be good. And this does not sound like the work of a good, any God that could reasonably be called good. And then when we take that approach to our faith and to reading the Bible, we realize, oh, wow, we actually don't have to believe these things about God because people said these things about God. Right. Like if you look at some of the beliefs that we carry, a lot of them are bound to proof texts. Somebody mercilessly rips a piece of the Bible out of its context and stitches it to another in order to weave this narrative together. Mm -hmm. What if we decided to let the Bible speak for itself without doing that? Mm. Where might that lead us if we trusted ourselves to bring presuppositions, right? The, the idea that God is just and this is what justice looks like is a presupposition that someone brought to the text and made a narrative. What if you said that God is good and this is what goodness looks like? What narratives would you uncover in the Bible? Mm, that's so interesting. And and actually that that really ties into my second point I want to talk to you about because I have really pressed into this idea recently of um the Bible's words being applied too quickly. We jump so quickly to application, so, so, so quickly without looking at context, right? That's something I've studied and I, I know about. The thing that I, as a white girl who's grown up in Kansas, has had a harder time with is this idea of race dynamics. And the way you weave those ideas together in your book was literally a light bulb moment for me because you talk about in-house discussions. You talk about that concerning race, and you talk about that concerning the Bible and what it looks right. like to be able to sit, to listen, and to not immediately apply something to your life, to your experience, or, or speak into it even. And would you just share a little bit about those two ideas? Most definitely. The parallel that I draw is between the Black experience here in the 21st century and in the 20th century in the United States and the first century context of Judaism um, that much of the New Testament was written in or composed in or, or redacted in. If a room full of Black people, right, let's just take a, a barbershop, a random imaginary barbershop, is having a conversation about something that has happened, whether that's George Floyd being killed, whether that's the NBA finals, the conversation will be impacted by the way that they're experiencing life. And if somebody who does not experience life in that same way, let's say Jeff Bezos walks into a barbershop on the south side of Richmond, Virginia, and it's the only white man in there, a lot of stuff is going to go over Jeff Bezos' head. Like, oh, I, this, this is an unfamiliar experience to me. Like, stuff will have to be broken down and translated for him. And if Jeff Bezos views Jeff Bezos' life and experience as the proper lens to understand that conversation is happening in that barbershop, Jeff Bezos is going to be lost. Mm-hmm. In a very similar way, Jesus is dealing with a community of people that have a very long history. And a lot of that history is defined by the reality and or the threat 
of exile, of oppression, of colonization, and all of these things. And so as Jesus is sitting here arguing with his contemporaries, as Jesus argues with some of the Pharisees and Sadducees or whoever, a lot of them have a similar question in mind. How do we best carry out the law of Moses when we are under the thumb of an empire that does not care about our customs and about our way of being? When we forget that that is the context, just about everything being discussed in the Bible, we're liable to misread a lot of these conversations. And so just like Jeff Bezos would be better served in that barbershop by maybe sitting back, listening and trying to piece together some of the things that the people are struggling with. What is the context of, of that conversation in the Bible? And I'm sorry, in the barbershop, rather. It's a bunch of people who feel like the safest place that they can be is in that barbershop talking amongst themselves without being policed by people who don't understand their experience. Mm -hmm. Likewise, what we're reading in the Bible is the story of a people who only have the right to self-definition when they are talking among themselves. Mm. There are no Roman perspectives present in the Bible. There are no Babylonian perspectives present in the Bible. There's no Persian uh, perceptions. There's no Egyptian perspectives preserved within the Bible. No, it is the right of a people to self-definition. Mm -hmm. When we grant them that right, all of a sudden, the story started to change a little bit like, oh, they said this because they were wrestling with this. And this is what God looked like to them in that moment, mm -hmm. as opposed to they were having this conversation for the benefit of my American self 1500 years later. Well, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, it's much longer than that, right? <laughs> um, when we center ourselves in these narratives, we'll miss what was actually being said. Mm -hmm. It's so, oh, it's so good. And I guess my next question then would be, this can lead, I think when, when you really grasp this, or at least when I did write about the Bible, yeah, the, there was blessing in that, of course, the, the, or, or fruit maybe in this idea of, oh, I can now allow myself to sit and not do these hasty, you know, gener generalizations and all that. But I found it really hard because then it, it almost felt like inaction was the next step in action. Like, well, what do I do then? I'm just an observer. Similar, I think, to how some people, I've certainly felt this in the past, you know, about racism coming to light in, in America and, and about being told, well, you you don't know, you don't know, and you need to, and it's like, that is true. And I think many of us accept that. But then how do we move from that to maybe proper action in both cases? I think, one of the things that trips up a lot of Christians is we are focused on believing the right things mm. as opposed to getting active, right? Jesus, of course, says, believe in me. But before he encourages people to believe, you know, he invites them to follow him. Mm. And even in that process, right? Like one of the reasons I, I, bristle at the substitutionary language as it pertains to the crucifixion is that Jesus also says things like pick up your cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is about, you know, it's easy to make fun of that era, the what would Jesus do era, because we think we all been like minimize that. So like the little day-to-day -day decisions, which is good, but also Jesus, the idea of Jesus is that God, this infinite, sinless, incorruptible God, 
enters finitude and corruptibility in the human person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason that happens is so that we know what God would look like were God in our situation. God literally enters our situation. And one of the things that looks like is standing with the people who have the least. That's why Jesus is always healing and Jesus is always feeding and Jesus is always ministering and Jesus stands in solidarity with those without. So when it comes to like what action looks like, we have to take the charge seriously that what the story of Jesus tells us is that God is about emptying God's self. God is about taking the fullness of who God is and pouring it out for the benefit of humanity. It is an inherently draining process, but the faith is that what we pour out will never be for nothing. What we pour out is always for salvation. And that even when we are received with hostility, even to the point of death for that self-emptying process, that the promise of God is in resurrection. And so what it looks like is literally redefining what success looks like. Mm -hmm. Why this idea of the first will be last and the last will be first? Because if you follow Jesus, you're going to look like a loser to the rest of the world. But God's promise is that, no, the losers are actually the ones who are winning when mm -hmm. everything is unveiled at the end. And so what action has to look like is self-sacrifice. We have to identify who the least among us are, whether those are people in the disabled community, whether those are immigrants, whether those are people who are most impacted by decisions that they have not been enfranchised or empowered to make. And we have to decide that what God cares about is how these people are experiencing life. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So... That actually ties in, this is perfect, to sort of my my last real big question from you, for you from your book, which is about your chapter entitled Whose Gospel? Yeah. Because, you know, so on my podcast, we, we alternate seasons. We do interviews and then we do seasons of, um, you know, Bible research, kind of digging into some troublesome passages. We're going to do some troublesome, yeah. you know, those tricky, those sticky ones um, and talk about different ideas and interpretations of this. And, and I just loved how you talked about the entire idea of the gospel and how someone shared with you that the gospel is actually in first Corinthians 15, three through four, and just how that whole interaction influenced your understanding of gospel and how you've wrestled with it. Could you just share about that with us? So, yeah, what that boils down to is, is what we consider good news. Right? Mm. There, there are lots of people who restrict the gospel to those two verses. I pass on what I first received, that Jesus was uh, crucified, buried, raised on the third day, that he appeared to Cephas and all, all these things. Like, that's that's what the gospel is. And yes, that's part of the story. But, but why? Right. Mm what is so significant about this man who died and was raised that we would even care that he was, there were two people who were crucified right next to Jesus on the very same day. What's so special about this one? Of course, like those two verses do say that Jesus got up again, that that's important, but why? And I think viewing the gospel to just what happens at the cross and in the empty tomb erases all the stuff that happened before then. In all four of the, the accounts of the gospel present in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
what those two verses are describing happens in the last like end the, the the last two to three chapters of each of those gospel accounts that's that's the end and everything before then i i argue that matters too what jesus says in introducing himself the gospel of luke is that uh i've come to proclaim good news that the year of the lord's favor is upon you i've come to heal the sick <laughs> proclaim freedom to the captives liberate the oppressed like that's what jesus's good news is and so I think the question we got to wrestle with is what is this story really about? Is it just about the physical reality of death and resurrection, this life after death? Or is it about the sort of life that God puts the stamp of approval on by resurrecting it again? Mm. Right. I think that that has to be part of the gospel. This idea is something called a perfect obedience. This is what the faithfulness of God looks like. All of that stuff is important to everything from the moment Jesus says that, oh, the year of the Lord's favor is upon you. This year of jubilee, this forgiveness of sins, the release from debt, all of that stuff is important. Because if you forget that that's what Jesus begins, where Jesus says, oh, no, I'm here to release people from their debts. I'm proclaiming jubilee right now. Then you can fall into the deception of thinking that no sins are forgiven until Jesus is beaten to a pulp. Mm. and raised from the dead, right? Yeah. Where we locate the beginning of this good news is important. Yeah. And so my question is always, oh, who, whose gospel are you talking about right now? Are you talking about the people who would like you to believe that the good news is that Jesus was tortured to death and then mm. raised? Or are we talking about people who would have you believe the good news is that an infinite God, an infinite incorruptible God loved humanity enough to take on finite, corruptible humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Is that where the good news begins? Mm, that's really powerful. That's really, well, and, and I would say, you know, can I ask you a few terms and, and you tell me how you would define them? Because they're going to be different than a lot of our uh, traditions, I mean, traditions and maybe understanding. And the first one I would love to ask about is salvation, which you've already kind of touched on. But someone who comes to you and says, you know, I don't really know anything about Christianity. What is this when they say salvation is offered here? What is that? Right. So <laughs> funny. I, the way I define it in my book, right? The final chapter is on this. Salvation is a rehumanization project. Mm. What we are dealing with is the impact and reality of sin. And when I say sin, a lot of people will think I'm talking about like a list of wrong things and transgressions against God. And yeah, there, there are sins and then, then there is sin, which is the reality of humanity, that which corrupts us and ultimately leads to the death that we see around us. From the very moment that you were born, things have already been set in motion that aim to strip you of your humanity, mm -hmm. to kill your imagination and your faith in the inherent and indestructible concept of goodness and rightness, right? That's what sin does. That is inherent to the human condition that we've inherited according to the way that I view the world. And what salvation is, is the defeat of all of those things that aim to strip you of your humanity. It is the restoration 
of the fullness of the image of God in your very self. It's dusting off all of that which hides who you truly are and the goodness of God that is inherent in your body. That's what salvation is. It is rehumanizing you mm -hmm. in light of all of the things around you that are there for the express purpose of dehumanizing you. Right? Jesus says the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Mm -hmm. oh, That's what salvation looks like. I love it so much. So then I would ask you, um, and I don't know, you know, all your thoughts on, you know, the idea of hell and all of that, but I have said on, on my page before, I said, I think Christ transcends Christianity. And what I mean by that is, and I've actually really held on to the, when, when Jesus says, I came so that they may have life and have it to the full, the abundant life, right? I said, I think Christ is always working even outside of Christianity, but there's so many people who say, no, 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 you will only be saved in Christianity. What are some of your thoughts on people coming to salvation, what, especially concerning those who have other worldviews? And I know that's a, maybe a bit of a loaded question, but, well, I don't know if it is <laughs> it's an honest question. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what that what that means for people who maybe don't have what I, especially in the past, I was like, I do think Christianity is the fullest depiction of reality. I used to say that. Now I'm, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm in this place of what's real, what's real. But even if it is, what does that mean for Christ's active work for those in different paradigms? Does that question make sense? Yeah. First and foremost, I know you mentioned about us coming to salvation. I don't think that's what happens at all. I don't think we mm. come to salvation. I think salvation comes to us i think that is the message of the incarnation of this infinite god taking on finite humanity salvation comes to us i think what does occur is that we awaken to salvation right oh, um that's and that's tough for a lot of evangelicals to hear because we're always focused on people getting saved mm -hmm. even though jesus says that it is finished that means we're already saved it's just a matter of finding out and awakening yeah. to that reality right wow yeah Wow. And that's tough for us to reckon with as we're talking about people, as you put it, in different paradigms, right? I don't believe in this whole idea of, oh, no, we have to get in, in missions and reach every every corner of the world with the gospel, because if we don't, then people are going to go to hell. That doesn't make sense. There's no way that you can call uh, God good who would condemn people to hell for not having heard the truth of God in the right words. Mm. What I do believe is that when Jesus says, other sheep have I who are not of this fold, that the implications are much larger than many of us have considered. Mm -hmm. If God has created all of these people, does not make sense that some of them would be contemned to eternal hellfire just because some of these people failed to reach them with the right incantations when God is also, according to the Tower of Babel, the one who scattered the languages in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we have to believe is that the God who enters humanity and the person of Jesus Christ is capable of doing that for whoever God chooses to do that. And one of the things that I love, the story of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descends and people speak in languages that they had not yet known. What God communicates in that moment is I'm not just the God of the people who speak this language. And my truth is in all the languages. In all of the cultures, in all of the tongues, that all of these people will come to know me in ways that they can understand. If you know enough about languages, then you know that there's not always a one-to-one -one equivalent. Some things have to be different, right? So if 
in English, it's in the beginning was the word. And in Spanish, it's in the beginning was the verb. The same truth is being communicated, but understood in fundamentally different ways. As if in one culture, Jesus is the bread of life, but in another, they don't eat bread. So Jesus is the yam of life or the sweet potato of life. <laughs> the, the truth is the same, even as the structures are different and how we come to know the truth are different, right? What we have to understand and leave room for in this universe that is still being born before us, full of twists and turns and surprises that we cannot possibly know, is that the same way that God at some point in history was revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that God is still able to reveal it to whoever. God being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ through the incarnation reached Simon and Anna in the temple eight days after Jesus Christ was born. God reveals the truth of who God is in the person of Jesus to the disciples at another point as he walks on war and all these things. And Peter says, oh, you're the one we've been looking for. God reveals more about who God is to another people after Jesus is raised from the dead. God is revealed to Paul at a different time after all of this happens. And so just because we do not see people receiving the revelation of God in the same way and at the same time as us does not mean that God is not still in the very active process of making who and what God is known to whoever is ready to receive this revelation of God. Hmm. And I think there has to be humility in understanding the fact that just because we become good communicators of sound doctrine and all of this stuff does not mean that we are in charge of the revelation of God. That's not how this works. We can help people awaken to the reality of salvation. But salvation is always God coming to us, not us coming to God. Man, you literally have tears in my eyes because the thought of God reaching us in our own languages is such, I mean, the, the implications for that is just very powerful, I think, for all the people I've interviewed and all the T honestly terrible stories i've heard of people interacting with christianity and yet christianity and christ has been so i don't know it's 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 also what has kept me alive at different points in my life and it's just such a beautiful thought it's almost like can god be that good well yeah if someone's actually good of course they're going to understand how you speak and how you live and how you see but for some reason we lost that along the way i think a My favorite part about God is that the best thoughts that we can possibly think about God, the best construct imaginable, God has to be better than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like no matter how the, the, the most beautiful story that I can weave together about who and what God is, right? if I can evoke tears from your eyes right now, God has to be even better than that. There's no way that I am better at imagining God than yeah. God is being God. Mm. Right. <laughs> So and I love that. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. And that's one thing I've had people ask me. This is this is not the same, but it's related. They said, you know, what if you're completely wrong? <clears throat> what do you, you know, what if you die and you end up and it's like, no, he is going to send you to eternal conscious torment. And what I have said is, you know, well, shoot for one, but <laughs> I don't think that's God. That's maybe the most powerful being, maybe, but that is not actually... Because because I do know God would know my heart. And so to not have compassion would not be a fully good being, I don't think. And so the th it has given me comfort to think, you know, we don't we don't often fear a super powerful bad being. 
if that makes any sense, because we think a lot of us think it's either God or nothing that exists. I mean, or Satan too, but, but this idea of, I, I think so many in deconstruction are really pressing into that question of goodness. Right. Can God good. be good? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts so, on that? When you said that uh, we don't often believe in a super powerful bad being, right? Like it's always good. Mm -hmm. I would contend that many of us do. We just call it good, right? If <laughs> we are imagining <laughs> a God wow. who would condemn some people to hellfire because they did not believe the right things about God. Because what mm -hmm. I chose to believe about God is that God is fundamentally good. And that is what I communicate to people. And there are people who tell me that I'm leading people to hell because I communicate this way about God. And mm -hmm. the God that they worship would condemn me to eternal hellfire for saying that he is love and loving and wants good things for us. If a God at the end of the fullness of time meets me and says, Trey, you are way too kind to people. You made me look too good. And now you will spend the rest of eternity burning in hellfire. That God is a monster. Right. And a lot of people believe in a God who is a monster. We have to, we have to be able to call that what it is. Right? Yeah. Um, if because there's no way if if right now my child comes home and they got in trouble for school because they were handing out big old bags of candy. It was like, oh, this child was sitting here. Even if I'm like, yo, you can't be handing out big old bags of candy. But I recognized that what they were trying to do was something good for people. Like, daddy, I wanted to make you proud. And so I was giving out bags of candy. If I sat there and grounded my child for the next three years, like I would be a terrible parent. God can't be a worse parent than me. And so... We got to wrestle with the fact that some of us, like, even though we call it a good God, we are in effect worshiping a monster that we legitimately believe that some people will end up in hellfire because they believed the wrong things about God. They didn't believe that God was stern or just enough, that God was incapable of forgiving by human standards, that the forgiveness of God somehow requires payment when even human forgiveness is the discharging of debt rather than the fulfillment of debt. Yeah. Wow. Well, and this has been a, this has been a little bit of a dilemma for me, this particular question, because I deeply feel the truth of what you're saying. The problem with my head is this, and I don't know if you've experienced this in your, in your um, theological training. When we talk about the omnis of God, right? Omniscience, mm -hmm. all knowing, omnibenevolent. Well, that's the one that's hard. All, all you know, but omnipotent, omnipotent, all powerful, all the things power can do. I have been told when it comes to benevolence, when it comes to goodness, the definition of that, how that is measured, is by whatever God is. So, like, you know, omnipotence, all things power can do. Say that can be measured by, well, is it possible to be done? Well, then we can say that's powerful. But when it comes to how people define goodness in the in Christian spaces, we're like, well, what's God like? That's good. And yet there's this big catch in our spirit sometimes within us that says, mm, these things don't seem good. So how, how do we think of measuring goodness, especially when we're trying to test our idea of God against what is good? <laughs> That's such a hard question. So I'd love to hear any thoughts. That yeah, that's how this goes, right? The the three omnis are, are never anything that God presents or that the Bible represents God is saying or offering that's true, for yeah. our consideration in the Bible. Those are human constructs, right? Mm -hmm. And and that that's fine. I'm not saying that like this is part of my job is to sit here and communicate things in ways, even though we don't really talk like that anymore. It wouldn't make sense for me to, I'm not present. Like what? No, what does that mean? But if what we construct 
requires us to contort ourselves for it to make sense, then maybe we should deconstruct it, right? Like if, <laughs> there you if, go. <laughs> if if we are saying that God is uh, omnipotent, like all beneficial, right? This is who God is, but good is defined by what God is, then what are we even doing here? That is begging the question. Mm. That's just saying yeah. that everything God does. And that means we can attribute anything to God. Oh, well, well, Hurricane Katrina must have been good because God, no, that doesn't make sense. And we're the one who put God in that box. Well, God has to be such and such, but because God did, no, these are word games and philosophical word games and one of the problems I have with some strains of Christianity, right? And, and I'm guilty of this at times too, with all the theologizing I do, is that we forget that what we believe about God and who we say about God or who we say God is has practical implications for how we show up in the world. Mm -hmm. The moment we say that, oh, goodness is determined by what God does, and then we're the people who decide what God is doing and what God's not doing, mm -hmm. we're just giving ourselves mm -hmm. license to show up in a certain way. That's really interesting, yeah. And, and we deceive why, ourselves, right? We deceive ourselves absolutely. and say, oh, that's God. I'm just saying what God wants. Right. And think about the implications of that. Some people point at the Bible and say, oh, well, slavery is regulated right here. Therefore, it's justifiable. When Jesus says the way that we frame this, what goodness looks like is do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And so if I would not myself like to be enslaved, then perhaps I should not enslave others. If I would not like to be spoken to this way or treated this way or marginalized this way or disenfranchised in this way or pressed upon, reigned upon in this way, then maybe I should not do that to others. Maybe I should not participate or affirm or uphold systems that do that to other people. That's the standard that Jesus gives us for goodness. Would you like to trade places with this person? Hmm. And if the answer is no, then it's not good. And that's not God. But the problem is some people are like, well, God is sovereign. We can't question God. Says who? Yeah. yeah, you're allowed to question the sovereign God. You can you can do that. It doesn't mean that you're going to win or, or, or an argument, but we're allowed to ask questions. God, does that make sense? We see it happen all the time. When God talks about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, Abram says, would you do it if there was 10 people? No, nah, I wouldn't. What about one? Well, just for one, I'll save the whole thing. We see it happen all the time. Moses says to God, God, are you really going to destroy these people that you just liberated? Think about how that's going to look on you. You're right. I'm not going to do that. Right. We see lots of people question a sovereign God. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful, man. This is, this has been such a great chat, Trey. I, I love your thoughts. I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm, you know, where is your church again? It's not close to me, but I would go. It's your Florida, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We are. Yeah. Well, as we finish up here, I know you said at the beginning and we're going to put in our show notes, but I, I know people are going to want to check out your book. They're going to want to check out your other projects you've got going on. Could you tell us one more time where, where we can find you? The best place to find me is at pastortreo5.com. That's pastortreo5.com. That's T-R-E-Y-0-5.com. And there you'll be able to find all of my social media handles. I'm on Twitter. I'm never calling it the other thing. I'm on threads, Instagram, <laughs> TikTok, Facebook. All of that stuff is linked to PastorTrail5.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter, uh, the Substack newsletter, The Sun Do Move at PastorTrail5.com. You can uh, listen to my podcast, both of them, The New Living Translation and Three Black Men. All of that can be found at PastorTrail5.com. And you can find all of the various places that you can buy The Sun Do Move at PastorTrail5.com. 
Okay. And your book, is it in, you know, is it on Amazon? Where can we find your book? Just about anywhere you can buy a book. You can find my book. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, bookshop.org. If you want to go to your local independent bookseller and place an order there, you can do that. Awesome. And we will put all of those in our show notes. Well, Trey, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights on the show today. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.